muscle. So we begin once again in the cycle of the afternoon sessions on the four immeasurables. We'll begin, of course, with loving-kindness, and we'll begin where we began, with this direction of loving-kindness for ourselves, trying to envision especially the genuine happiness, but seeing the balance, kind of imagining the balance between the hedonic. And clearly, it's very difficult to experience, to deepen one's experience of genuine happiness without having sufficient hedonic pleasure. The hedonic needs, the mundane needs, met. And so when they're not met, they actually tend to be the most pressing and the ones of greatest interest. Um, But then once they are met, then there's a possibility of going far beyond them. And so as you envision your own well-being, consider not only very idealistically just the genuine happiness, as if it kind of hovers all by itself in in mid-space, but also what really we'd love to experience for meeting your more mundane ends. And the hedonic is not trivial. That's one, again, a point very important. Having a very meaningful relationship with a spouse, that's hedonic to a large extent. I mean, the the, the happiness we get independence upon the other person is hedonic. It's also very, very meaningful. Uh, Deriving great delight from one's children can be extremely meaningful. It's also hedonic. So I hope this word hedonic doesn't sound just crass, low, something that spiritual people don't get involved in because it's very, very important. And the Buddha himself referred to this, how important it is to bring a quality of happiness, of lightness, of joy to the practice, and how difficult it is overall if there's more of a a, a heavy, ponderous, uh, how do you say, dissatisfied quality of mind, just how difficult it is to develop any truly flourishing spiritual practice. So, let's go back to the beginning, but go there for the first time, once again. Uh, Each time we go through, it should never be simply a repetition, as if we got all all the answers right the first time, but go back with a freshness and ask the questions as if for the first time. And you'll recall them, but I'll remind you of them as we go through the practice. This is kind of that vision quest beginning of the cultivation of loving kindness, focusing principally on ourselves. So please find a comfortable position. As your first act of loving kindness in this session, let your awareness descend into the body and settle your body in its natural state.
settle your respiration in its natural rhythm and calm the mind for a little while with mindfulness of breathing.
then as we move into the cultivation of loving-kindness, starting from where we are, imagine now your own flourishing, the kinds of suffering, dissatisfaction, from which you would love to be free, and the kind of well-being, especially the genuine happiness that you would love to realize. And now as we move through the second cycle of these 10 days of meditations, I invite you to embrace as a working hypothesis or perhaps an affirmation of a deep intuition, the deepest dimension of your own awareness, called by many names, Rigpa, pristine awareness, primordial consciousness, Buddha nature, innate mind of clear light, a dimension of your awareness that is primordially pure, the wellspring of all virtue, and the deepest wellspring or source of genuine happiness. Your, mo- your, your own most innermost birthright. Imagine this symbolically, if you will, as a radiant orb of white light at your heart, embodying all of the qualities of enlightened mind, the compassion, the wisdom, the purifying power. Imagine this as an inexhaustible source of light and with every out-breath, arouse the yearning. May I be truly well and happy. May I realize my heart's desire and imagine rays of light flowing out from this orb at your heart, filling your entire body, saturating every cell of the body, permeating every aspect of the mind, completely suffusing your own being. With every outbreath, arouse this heart of loving kindness.
breath by breath, imagine realizing here and now the sense of well-being and fulfillment that is your heart's desire. Now imagine in order to realize such well-being, what would you love to receive from the world around you? To meet your hedonic needs and beyond that, to help you cultivate the inner, the inner source of genuine happiness. with each in-breath. Imagine breathing in all that you truly need from the world around you, freely given without your having to reach out and take. And with each in-breath, arouse the yearning. May I indeed receive all that I truly need in order to find the fulfillment, the well-being that I seek. And breathe in the light of the world, freely given, just like the breath flowing in effortlessly.
and imagine from moment to moment, breath to breath, receiving all that you truly do need. The world rising up to meet you in your pursuit of genuine happiness. In order to realize such well-being, clearly it is not enough to receive the assistance of those around you. There must be internal transformation. So in the same spirit of loving-kindness, not simply a bunch of shoulds, as if you're a stern commander, but rather out of the spirit of loving-kindness for yourself, bring to mind from what qualities of mind, what modes of behavior would you love to be free? With which ones would you love to be endowed so that you may realize your own fulfillment? With each outbreath, breathe life into this vision. Let the light flow from your heart and breath by breath. Imagine realizing here and now the transformation you'd love to see occur. Finally, in order to bring the greatest possible meaning to your own life, 
Imagine what would you love to offer to the world around you that would give you the greatest sense of satisfaction. Over the short term, the long term, to those who are near and to those who are far, what would you love to offer to the world? With each outbreath, imagine the light flowing in from your heart and arouse the yearning, may it be so. each out-breath, imagine it being so. Imagine offering such goods here and now. Imagine them being received.
let your awareness rest in its own nature, silent and luminous. So we come to the anonymous question, which I'm happy to respond to. But first, anything coming up in your practice? We have a long time now. We don't necessarily have to stay here the whole time if there are not enough things to talk about. Yes, we'll start with Andreas. Yeah. Um, I, I have a question that has, has two parts. Uh, we, uh, so they are sort of connected. Um, it's it's about breaks between between the sessions that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, how should we measure? How th- should we size the breaks? How, how how long should they be? And and connected to that, um, sometimes uh, after meditating, uh, I get tired, um, mm-hmm. or yeah, basically tired uh, of the meditation. And mm-hmm. is that an indication of wrong practice? Uh, well, not necessarily. So the first question about about the breaks especially if the sessions are still relatively short, like 24 minutes or something like that, uh, then a lot of people find that just taking a little break, just two or three minutes to stretch, maybe change the posture, is quite sufficient. And they can go right into a second one and still feel fresh, still want to practice and have the interest. The level of interest is really crucial. And that is, if interest is there, this doesn't mean that you'll have just one great session after another. Sessions go up and down. From day to day, the practice goes up and down. But if the interest is there, you know, the real commitment to the practice, then when the mind is really distracted and lots and lots of thoughts are coming up, one recognizes it and just keeps on releasing and releasing and releasing. On the other hand, if it gets dull a bit time, then one arouses and arouses. In other words, one does the practice. And one is really learning how to balance the mind. Uh, And the fact that there may be a lot of disturbances, excitation, dullness, and so forth, is not a bad sign. It's just dealing with reality. But if the interest wanes, if the interest declines, the level of commitment, the engagement with the practice, if that kind of tapers off, one's getting bored or just tired of the practice, then you better stop. Because if one continues with that attitude, it only creates a bad habit, you know, of just kind of a sloppiness uh, in the practice. So it's better to stop before before it gets really boring, you just don't want to do it anymore. And I've mentioned this many times in the past. Don't have the sessions go so long that by the time you're at the end, you're just kind of really sick of it or just tired of it, you know? Much better to end before then. So in terms of how, how long the break, if you're just having two sessions, you might just have a two or three minute break. Again, you can do a bit of stretching. Forward stretching is very nice. Maybe you just get, get limber up the spine a little bit and then go right into the second one, either in the same posture 
or in a different posture. Um, and if the practice is going well, uh, a lot of people find it's quite nice to have three back-to-back, fairly short sessions. Each one has a little break. But after you've finished however many it is, whether it's one, two, three, then to take a break. And then, of course, I can't say that it should be half an hour, it should be 45 minutes, what have you. Uh, it should be fairly fluid. And so th- this is, once again, where one's looking for the balance. Enough of a break that you feel refreshed. Maybe you want to do a bit of reading. Maybe you want to go for a walk. Um, who knows what, you know? Go, go, go off for a cup of tea, whatever. But give yourself some, this is expansiveness. Because shamatha by, na- by nature, even awareness of awareness, does entail a gathering together. It's samadhi, a composure, a unification, a collection of awareness. And to balance that so it doesn't get too dense, too tight, too constricted, in between sessions, and this has been true for hundreds of years among the greatest yogis in Tibet, they would often have their caves or, the, or their huts in a place where there was a big view. Very, very common. And so they may go very, very intensely within, but then between sessions, they really come out. And Tibet's a really good place for that. Okay, here we are, we're in a valley, but at least we have good cloud formations. We don't have snowy peaks, but we have nice cloud formations to look at. So how long that, how, how long that break is, it really, I can't say, you know, what... It differs from one person to the next. But I would say that don't push, don't push it so hard that you're kind of feeling just bored, that you, pu- you push it until you're bored, you know, that you just don't want to do it. Stop before then and take some kind of break. Do something else. Yeah, in, in, in terms of um, getting tired or um, sometimes even getting exhausted probably after two or three sessions, uh-huh. when I get exhausted, is that... Um, a result of doing the practice or, or shouldn't, shouldn't it appear? Should it, should it be you know, uh, so it shouldn't relaxed? be exhaustion. That sounds more like an air traffic controller. You know? And I was just... Because re- <laughs> I do check the news. Uh, they reported just recently that air traffic controllers were um, watching television while they should be actually looking at planes. And then another one got fired for falling asleep. <laughs> and so in a way, you can't blame them. It's not an interesting job. And you have to be very alert. They probably don't have any attentional training at all. And it's all tight, it's all pushing, it's all kind of probably a little bit anxious. And, of course, they get exhausted. Shamatha really should not be that way. So if you're exhausted at the end of two or three sessions, the chances are just about 100%. You're, t- you're pushing too hard. You're pushing too hard. It's, if in doubt, it's 10 to 1, it's 20 to 1 that people are pushing too hard rather than not exerting enough effort. And that's, that's the way of the modern world. This is how everybody gets everything done. By pushing, you know, in this competitive world, striving, get on top of the other, get more money, get more, get, 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 get. It's all pushing, and it's the harder, harder, the harder you work, the better you'll do. No pain, no gain. We have all of these mottos, and it's all about ego. It's all about strenuous ego exertion, and it all leads to exhaustion. Okay, and that's why people who are in, in these high-intensity professions they always feel exhausted after they've been doing it, because it all comes from clenching. So this is a radically different way, really fundamentally different way to cultivate, to cultivate the attention. And that's why the emphasis overwhelmingly, even if this is what you do for the first seven weeks out of eight, having a sense of deeper, deeper relaxation. So after two or three sessions, you may feel, I think I need to, to expand a little bit. That's fine, because otherwise you just spend all day in meditation. But I think I need a break. Or needing to pee, that's a really good reason to break, you know? Uh, or maybe I want something to drink. Or maybe doing a bit of reading would be good. 
Um, whatever. But, you know, we have various things to do. Not much entertainment, but there are some things we can do in between. But mostly to give the mind some freshness, some expansiveness. But it shouldn't be coming, coming out of exhaustion and then trying to recoup, trying to restore the damage done by the earlier sessions. This is not the right strategy. So always be coming back just a deeper relaxation. And if you can tap into it, where you just start, you start to enjoy the soothing quality of it. And it's especially with the out-breath of just releasing and releasing and just getting so mellow that you don't think, boy, I'm getting so mellow, I think I, take, I better take a break. You know, people don't say that. And so strong emphasis, really strong emphasis. And it doesn't have to be just in the supine position or the sitting position. This is why I mentioned this morning that a way to get that freshness can be come out and just do some mindful walking, let it be spacious, it can be supine, but overall, really strong emphasis. Break old habits. And the more deeply ingrained the habit is, the more time it will take. Nevertheless, it can be life-changing, life-transforming to learn how to venture into any of our activities, a conversation, going to work, watching television, whatever it may be, with a sense of looseness, inner calm, and then the clarity. It's very different. It's not the way of the modern world. It's an alternative. Okay? So, loosen up. Anything else coming up? Yes, Chakdor. And then to Randa. From today, I will ask a question not only from my name, but also from the name of Venerable Kimbola. Yes, from Basa, Venerable Basa. Uh-huh. Yeah. Very good. Excellent. And first question is how will be awareness on Tibetan? I couldn't hear. Uh, how to say awareness on Tibetan language? Awareness is Rigpa. So I'm generally, bear in mind, this one word, so this is for everybody. The one word, Rigpa, uh, it's used, the term that comes up all the time in Buddhist psychology, Lodjma Karasa, Lorik. Lorik namely Rigpa Yore, Rigpa dan Shepa Dunjira. And so in that context, Rigpa is just Vidya, Rigpa is just awareness, and it's synonymous with consciousness. And so in that context of Buddhist psychology, it's just, I'm aware of your blue shirt. I know it, I'm aware of it. So it's just ordinary. So this is a bit tricky on occasion. Sometimes in texts, when I'm translating texts, I have to look at context. The word ripa, the word ripa comes, is it referring just to awareness? which is completely conditioned, arising in dependence upon causes and conditions. It's in time, it's momentary, it's impermanent. It becomes contaminated by mental afflictions, it gets purified and so forth and so on. Just ordinary mind, as opposed to pristine awareness, which is the innate, the innate mind of clear light, which is utterly transcendent. So the one word is being used for both. So when I'm using it in the ordinary sense, then I just call it awareness as in Buddhist psychology, awareness, synonymous with consciousness, which is shepa, shepa, or also namshe. Whereas when we're dealing in the deepest level, then of course I call it pristine awareness. And pristine indicating that it's by nature pure. It's primordially pure. So this is true of the nyukmesem, it's true of rikpa, it's true of yeshe, that it's not contaminated, does not need to be purified, it's primordially pure. So one term, rikpa, I'll be translating as, as awareness or as pristine awareness, depending on context. Okay? So second question is, uh, 
according to observing mind yes. meditation. And if I am thinking, where is awareness? And is it possible to think without awareness? Uh, it's, uh, the question is uh, about the nature of awareness. About the nature of awareness. And in terms of observing mind, uh, are you referring to Sem Nelubaba? The settling the mind in its natural state or awareness of awareness? Which? Just observing, the mind, uh, observing what is uh, appearing at the mind. Okay, so we'll, we'll call that, just so we all agree on the same terminology, there are different terms one can use, but we'll call that settling the mind, or settling the mind in its natural state. Sem nilubaba. And what are you doing at that time? You're attending to the mind, space of the mind, and mental events. So chukikam, chukikam dang, karasada, lola kangshaya, whatever arises, namdo lasoba. So you're attending to that. So with that being straight, so the question is, what, what is awareness in that context? Can you, can you think without awareness? Was that the question? Can you uh, think with... And the uh, question is, when we're thinking, yeah. what is awareness at that time? Okay. Awareness may be directed in two different directions. If you're just thinking, if you right now think about your monastery, very far away, thousands of miles away in Mongolia, when you're thinking about that, what is the object of your attention? You... Mikpa, kare. So, basa. When you're thinking about your monastery, what is the yul, or the object? What is it? Yes, the monastery, exactly. So there are people in your monastery. There are young men in your monastery. They look to you for guidance. You are their teacher, their abbot. And so you're attending to the monastery, the buildings, the monks, the community. And so that's where your attention is going. And you may be thinking about them. All good. Yeah? But now, if you're settling the mind in its natural state, if you're practicing shamatha, right, an image of your monastery may come to mind. Karasa, namba. Yuki namba. Or nangwa. Karasa gunbe nangwa, lola The appearance of the monastery comes to mind. But when you're doing the practice of observing in the mind, you just observe that appearance. And that appearance is here. If you're meditating here, that appearance of your monastery is here. It's not thousands of miles away. Your monastery is there, but the appearance is here. So you focus single-pointedly on that appearance, and you don't think about your monastery. So thoughts may come up. How is my monastery? How are the monks doing? Are they happy? Do they have enough to eat? Are they okay? Those thoughts may arise. If you're really thinking those thoughts, then your attention is focused on them. Right? But the thoughts may simply arise. Loburtu, loburtu, just naturally arising, spontaneously. Thoughts, oh, I wonder how they are. Are they eating enough? What's, what are they doing? The thoughts may arise, and if you're doing this practice, you just watch the thoughts. Just the thoughts. But you don't think about the monastery. Okay? So when you're thinking about the monastery, is there awareness? Yes. There's awareness directed to your monastery. Right? Whereas when you're doing this practice of settling the mind in its natural state, there's awareness of what is arising in your mind right now. And that's all you're interested in. Okay? So they're very different. So likewise, when you're practicing loving kindness, so the jambagong, jambagong, you may be very good, of course, for you to be directing your attention to the monks in your monastery. Okay? You bring them to mind. You can I'm sure you can remember their faces, probably all of their faces. You can remember, right? 
And you may re- you remember their names, you remember their background, how old they are, and so forth. And so when you're practicing loving-kindness, then you're focusing your mind on those monks and then wishing them, may you be well. May you find happiness and the causes of happiness. And you're focusing on them. Okay? And that's with awareness, but it's an awareness directed to them. Right? But when settling the mind in its natural state, when you're observing the mind, then you're not attending to human beings. You're just observing lola shala, just what arises to the mind. Is that clear? It's very important. Good. And then, chartola. And then, uh, is it possible to think without awareness? Uh, to think without awareness, you can think with not much awareness. <laughs> We do it all the time. We're very good at it. Right? When you're practicing mindfulness of breathing, and thoughts are coming and coming and coming, the thoughts are there, not much awareness. You don't even know that you're thinking. But you can't say there's no awareness, but there's not much. Okay? Is that all? Okay, good. What, what's that? Maybe for today. Well, maybe for today. Okay, good. good. No, we're not finished yet. <laughs> but we are almost finished with two weeks. It's gone by quickly, I think, hasn't it? Or maybe not. <laughs> okay, good. Thank you, Chakra. And thank you so much for translating for Basa, a true friend. Very good. So, if you have any more questions, you always ask, okay? I'm happy to do my best. Okay? Maybe I don't know the answer, but I'll do my best. Yes, Rhonda. Thank you. Um, just three things. Um, the first is a, a footnote to your thing about diet. And I couldn't quite hear. A footnote too. The, the um, talk that you gave about diet. I still couldn't quite hear. About the diet. About you know. diet, yeah, yes. Yeah. About diet. Um, and the second thing is it's just an observation and the third is a question. Okay, okay. carry on. So um, um, the first thing is, is something that um, a Dharma friend said to me um, when it came up that people were being judgmental about what people ate. And uh-huh. she said that um, Hitler was a vegetarian. That's true. And Mother Teresa was a meat eater. And what, was what? A meat eater. A meat eater, yes. yes. It's so, easy to give those out, yeah. I know about Hitler. And David Datta, who tried to kill the Buddha, he was a vegetarian. Yeah, so yeah. that's interesting. But not to take away from those people who have such an affinity animals that they couldn't bear to think of, yeah. of eating one. That's, di- That's wonderful. Different, different. It's wonderful. That's why I didn't mention I've known about Hitler for a long, long time, but it's kind of a cheap shot. Yeah, yeah, it's really yeah, cheap. Yeah. I mean, what does that really, how does that help us to know that? It's incidental. It's insignificant that he was a vegetarian, so I never even bring it up. Um, but you can be a bit simplistic about um, because somebody eats this food, then they're that sort of a person. Yeah, so I and, guess that and that was my final. It. That was my final point yesterday. Yeah, yeah. That um, there are food allergies. I mean, I'll just go, give one example, but it's not an important one. Mm. I can't digest soy, soy products. Mm. And very, very often, if you take, go vegetarian, that's what you get. That's your only protein. It's soy. And then I just can't digest it. Then I didn't get any protein. So, you know, that's... But does that, did anybody really need to know that? I don't mm. think so. No. It's just your own private business, yeah. yep. right? And so, and like for if people have nut allergies, nuts are a good source of protein, but, if you, but some people will die if they have a peanut, you know. And so this is why it's very personal. Mm. 
And if you go to do traditional Asian medicine, also even Western medicine, but Asian medicine I know something about, there are certain body types that can just absolutely flourish, no problem at all, eating just, you know, with no animal, animal protein at all. And they'll do just fine. And other ones, really hard. They really, it would be much harder to stay healthy if they're not having some animal protein. Doesn't necessarily have to be flesh, but animal protein. It's, uh, you know, it, it tends to be the vata people, mm-hmm. the wind people. And they can, they can get by, but it may be hard. They may be kind of light and jittery and kind of ungrounded if they don't have something more solid. So the point there is that it's very individual. And if one just brings one's own purity of motivation to one's own diet, with one's own wisdom, with the larger, the larger vision, and, th- and now just really speaking from, from a Dharma perspective, the, the question is a very simple one. Wherein lies the greater benefit? Wherein lies the, the, the least harm? And then we answer that for ourselves. So if we look at the last 40 years of the Dalai Lama's life, there were times when he was not eating meat, and then his health would collapse. And then he, he can't do the Dalai Lama's work, and nobody else can do his work. So then he started eating meat. So it's been in and out, in and out. Uh, this immensely compassionate person, you know. And what I heard through the grapevine, and I don't know whether it's true and it's not particularly important one way or another, is that, um, you know, now occasionally when he needs it, he eats it. But I had an experience with him years ago when we were in Innsbruck. Uh, it was a wonderful experience. We were there to visit Anton Seilinger's laboratory. And he was showing the Dalai Lama his quantum teleportation. It was really one of the highlights of my life to be involved in that as the interpreter with Chutan Jimbat, one of two interpreters. But uh, we, they put us up at a lovely hotel. It was like a, like, like a little castle. It was really lovely. And there was one meal, it was an evening meal, where His Holiness was with us. Usually he would, he would dine, dine privately, just have some, some peace and quiet. But this time he, it was agreed he would eat with us. And there's something the Dalai Lama's often said about about eating meat. And then he says, if you, have to, if you really feel you, you really need to eat meat, then better eat part of a big animal than a little animal. You know, like a shrimp cocktail where 15 little sentient beings gave their life so you can have a little t- something tasty. Rather get a big buffalo, you know, some big animal that would then, you know, feed for a long, long time. So we guess one creature was killed. That's true. But at least then it serves a lot of people you know, for a long time. And so I've heard him say this many, many times. And I can see the logic of it, yeah? So here this meal was served for His Holiness at the head of the table and the various scientists in the group of the mind and life and so forth and so on. And they brought out trout. Everybody got a trout. Everybody got a dead sentient being, you know? And I looked at it and I, and I thought, oh man, number one, Tibetans really don't eat fish. They really don't like fish. And they think that fishing is really a very crude and nasty thing to do because you're going into somebody's home and you're killing them. You know, whereas if you're a nomad, at least you're taking care of the herds. You're really looking after them. You're protecting them. And so then when you occasionally need to kill one, well, okay, at least you took care of her for a long time. You invested something. But you just go to a stream and then pull them out of their home and kill them. Tibetans just generally think that's pretty low. And they just don't, they're just not fish eaters, just overall. And we have the Dalai Lama's background. You know, if you have to eat animal, eat part of a big one, you know? And so that one cow could serve everybody here, probably, you know, for some days. And so out come all the trout. Everybody has their own little trout. I think they even had the heads on it, because you have, get, have the trout looking at it. <laughs> and I turned to the person, I turned to the person who was ser- serving it quietly, and I thought, oh, you're, 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 you're wrong on both accounts. 
you know, you're giving the Dalai Lama a dead sentient being. And number one, they don't eat fish. And number two, they don't eat fish. They don't really like it. And so I quietly try, tried to quietly say, could you offer his homeland something else? And his homeland has, of course, heard me. And he said, no, 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 no. Pipe down. I'm talking to me, pipe down. Yeah, let it be. Don't make a fuss. And he ate his trout. So. Thank you. Um, and the second one is um, an observation about the, um, uh, the, the stretching one, the, the stretching... The stretching one that we did? Oh, the stretching of the mind. Yes. Yes, yes. Um, the last phase of awareness of awareness. Yes. That one. Um, what I experienced doing that um, was as if my whole energetic body was moving in the directions that you were saying. Oh, very true. And, yeah. and what is that? Because <laughs> this was really quite powerful. I felt like I had yeah. a, like a vacuum cleaner sucking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like that. <laughs> what is that? Sure. Well, I think you use exactly the right word. There are energies coursing through the body of a wide variety, five major types of vata or wind, five minor types, each having their own specific functions. And among these winds or vital energies, uh, then the prana is especially related to the mind. And a general rule of thumb, and it, it, it becomes almost a scientific issue that could be tested, but a general rule of thumb is where you direct, especially within the body or around the body, where you direct your awareness, you are directing the prana. The awareness itself is immaterial and non-physical. The prana is physical but immaterial. So, so physical means it interfaces, it interacts with other physical phenomena like tissue and liver and blood and so forth. But immaterial means it's not composed of molecules. Immaterial is not made out of matter. Okay? So a distinction, a very meaningful distinction can be made and really should be made, needs to be made between material and physical. <coughs> and this is not a new, age, a new age distinction. It's not uniquely Buddhist. Uh, in Buddhist, it's Dzogchen and Bembo. Bembo is material. Dududupa. Dududupa. So it's composed of atoms. But Dzogchen yin, Bembo yin kyap. Bembo yin, Dzogchen yin kyap. So if something, that was just a Tibetan, obviously. If something is material... It is necessarily physical. If something is physical, it's not necessarily material in this sense of being composed of matter or elementary particles, atoms, molecules, and so forth and so on. So just to, to illustrate this briefly, uh, an, electromagnetic, an, electromagnetic, oh, an electromagnetic field, indisputably physical, it's measured with physical instruments, they interface with each other, They're, you know, inter uh, wave interference patterns of electromagnetic fields. So this is very, very well known since the mid-19th century. And these waves propagate through space, we've known now for more than a century, uh, at the speed of light. And it turns out that that speed of light is invariant across all inertial frames of reference. But the point here is that light moves through utterly empty space. That is, with no atoms in it at all, light moves through deep space and so forth. Deep space has a, little, a few molecules, but they're very low density. Um, but the point then is that electromagnetic fields, or light, is physical. There's just no question. It interfaces with matter. Energy can turn into matter. Matter can turn into energy. It doesn't get any more physical than that. But the electromagnetic fields are not composed of matter. They're not composed of one material particle, an electron or anything else. It's just pure energy, so it's not composed of matter, right? So now in a similar fashion, 
this prana within the body, it is physical. It's physical. It interfaces with the physical constituents of the body, the coarse tissue. It is physical, but it's not material. It's not material. And the prana that's closely associated with the mind then moves with the mind. So if you direct your, if you develop some samadhi, some really intensely focused attention, and you focus it right in on your heart, there will be a convergence of prana at your heart. Now, something along these lines has been known for decades, if not longer, in biofeedback. And that is people have known for a long time. If you now start really intently focusing on the tip of your finger, that's going to influence the capillaries in the tip of your finger. And it's probably going to get warmer because the capillaries open up, the, fl- the blood flows more strongly, the temperature raises, and then you t- direct your attention elsewhere, and then it cools off, the capillaries close down a little bit. And so that's known physiologically exactly how that happens. I don't think neurofeedback specialists or brain specialists really know from mind. I mean, they may very well know from brain to finger. Why not? That's physical to physical. But mind is not physical and it's not material. So if we look at this from a first-person physiology, right, then wherever you're directing awareness, you're directing prana. Well, where, where were you directing your awareness? When you shot your awareness as far up, up into space above you as you could, you're directing awareness there, you're directing prana there. So you said energetic body. Your words were very well chosen. Yeah. To the left, to the right, down, into the heart, and then supernova. You could really feel that. That was interesting. I couldn't hear again. I said I could really feel that. It was an interesting experience. Yes, it's it's somatic. It is a physical experience. Yes. Um, And the third thing is um, a question. I was just wondering your reasons for not choosing um, a Buddha image as the focus. Uh-huh. It's classic. I've translated a number of presentations of that. A classic present- presentation from Tsongkhapa, Gyanlam Rimba's oral teachings I translated. So I'm very, very familiar with it. Um, and the major reason for not emphasizing it, number one, I don't question for a moment that it is, that it is a valid method. I think it's indisputably. It has worked for many, many centuries. Traces back to classic texts in India. It's not in the Pali Canon, but not everything good is in the Pali Canon. You find it in the Mahayana Sutras, and there it is, very clear. Um, For people living in this world that I've been attending to closely for the last 40 years, when people, whether Tibetan or not, if they try to sit down and just generate an image and then focus on it single-pointedly, and do that for hour after hour in a day, almost everybody starts getting really tight. And they give up. And then they give up. Say, I can't do it anymore. Number one, I don't like it. It's just draining me. It's tightening me up. And I'm not doing it very well. So number one, I feel kind of rotten about it. Number two, I suck at it. Number three, I'm getting really tired of it. And I think I'm going to go do something else. And they find something else to do. Because you know, there's all kinds of more interesting things to do. The six yogas in Europa, Dumo practice is very popular, Poa is very popular, Chit is very popular. They're all much more interesting than just focusing on a Buddha image. And knowing also when you first start doing it that you expect that you'll do it really poorly and you have to be satisfied with that. And not try to make it more vivid. So the, the most common tendency is when people try to generate a mental image, what they do is you look at it visually, try to really imprint it upon your mind, then regenerate it mentally, and then focus on it single-pointedly. For almost everybody, the image you get is really vague, and it's unsatisfying, and it's hard to hold on to. And the natural inclination is, 
let it be at least clearer so I can enjoy it, you know? And so then one goes for clarity. Well, does anybody recall what happens if you go for clarity without having relaxation and stability? It ties you up in knots. And so I've met quite a number of people, Tibetans and Westerners, who try it and they just get tied up in knots. Or they manage to so find a balance there. I met one very good practitioner, very sincere, good, eth- excellent ethics, strong motivation, doing visualization practice and practicing shamatha. Right? And he felt that he had achieved stage seven out of nine. In other words, he was kind of pretty close to finished. And then I asked him, how long are your sessions? And he said, 45 minutes. And then... I could be wrong here, but to my mind, that this person had no way achieved stage seven. No way. He got that far by sheer, sheer willpower. I know it because I tried doing it myself. The first long shamatha retreat I did, it was a visualization practice. And I was, for, for week by week, I was getting better and better and better. I was really quite impressed with myself. And then projecting, uh, you know, imagining, oh, if I'm, gonna, I'm doing this well, this is, you know, I drew my little graph and I should be finished in such and such a number of weeks because here I go, I'm just climbing up the ladder. And what I didn't notice, because I was a Westerner, and I hadn't been taught this so much, but it has to come out of relaxation. And I was young and full of a lot of enthusiasm and willpower, determination, and I approached it with shamato or bust. You know, I'm going to get there the good old-fashioned way, I'm just going to bear down and I'm going to crack the whip and I'm going to get it done. And I remember reading, being really pissed off one morning when I think I slept in until 3.30. When I told myself I should be getting up at 3.15, when I saw it was 3.30, I gave myself a real lashing. You flake. And so, you know, you can imagine that retreat didn't go all that well. I thought I was doing really well, but it was all with sheer willpower, with sheer relentless effort and then to my surprise because I had no other Western I didn't know I didn't know any other Westerner at all who'd even tried to practice shamatha seriously this was 30 years ago that I found I hit a ceiling that I could maintain what I felt was just unbroken engagement with the meditative object for about a half an hour and, and regularly with no course excitation but then I found as the weeks went by it wasn't getting any better and what I was getting is more and more tired, fatigued, and all the joy was going out of the practice. And it was getting really boring. So, and then my visa ran out. <laughs> so I had, to, I had to move to another country. So that's why. That's why. And so all of this is true. I think it's true for a lot of Tibetan practitioners. They don't mind going off for a shamatha retreat on, focusing on a Buddha image for a month or so. Then they stop. Hard, very, very few Tibetans will do more than a month or so. And then they're on to something much more interesting. Bodhicitta, Vipassana, stage of generation, stage of completion, Dzogchen, Mahamudra, anything. But let get me out of here. You know? And so, that's all true statement, as far as I, I know. That's all true statement. But I've also been to some very high country. I've been to Tibet four times. I've been in some, some really high mountains elsewhere also. And I have found that if you're up at about 5,000 meters or higher, the quality of the air, just the general environment, when you're at that kind of altitude, it has an impact on the mind. 
it's almost like your mind becomes lighter. Like you can float, you know? Especially, I mean, anybody's at 15,000 feet, you don't have lush jungle, you know? It's, it's austere. It's striking. It's strong. It's powerful. It's sharp. It's clear. Um, it's really luminous. And it's just flat out easier to visualize at five or 6,000 feet than it is at sea level or 2,000 meters. So I'll give one other example. There's one extraordinary yogi I knew. He is rather well-known in the Galupi community. In Dharamsal, everybody knew of him. Name of Genchambawandu. Wonderful yogi. Really extraordinary yogi. And after participating in about the first 10 or 15 years of formal monastic training in Sera Monastery in Tibet, then he got all the basics. He got his perfection of wisdom, he got his Madhyamaka, he got Buddhist epistemology, and he didn't care about getting a degree. A, a, getting a degree. So he, he zipped off. He, he left the monastery. And he went up into the high mountains, just a community of Milarepa-like yogis, little, little community of them, really absolute, dedicated, hardcore yogis. And their leader was Tehor Kyopin Rinpoche, and he was famous. He was, he was like a Kadamba master, just incredible yogi. So this Genchama Wandu, he went up and joined them. And so now they have to be really high up. They're probably at 5,000, 6,000 meters. You know, and they're totally secluded. And, but also that's rather far away from a food line, from food. And so Chamba Wandu, this is going to a bit of just storytelling. Chamba Wandu really thought how good it would be to not have to eat anymore. So this actually pertains to your earlier question. Uh, how good it would just, how convenient it would be not to have to eat anymore, Right? Well, he wasn't at a point in the practice where he could just live on the food of samadhi, but he was at a point in his practice, pretty well grounded, uh, where he could live on what's called medok jule. And jule means taking the vital essence, and medok means flower. And so there's a, it's a very specific quasi-meditative, quasi-medical practice where you go out to the very high country and you pick flower petals uh, from the high, really high country, and then you take these petals and you dry them out and then you mix them with a little bit of uh, tsamba, parched barley meal, a little bit of butter, a little bit of um, honey, a little bit, and some other herbs. But, it's, but a lot of it's flowers. And you, you grind that all up. First you make the powder and then you mix it with the butter. You have your tsamba, but you mix it with butter and honey. Everything else is dry. And you mix it, and you make it into little balls, like, like a marble, like that. Right? And you dry them out. And then you need to accomplish it. You, you can't just eat them. You need to accomplish that. And that means to empower them with the power of your samadhi. So we're right back. So all of this is dovetailed into your earlier questions, both of your earlier questions. You direct the power of your samadhi to them, and you imagine by the power of your samadhi that you're drawing the vital essence of all of the five elements, earth, water, fire, air, and space, from the surrounding environment with a visualization practice. You imagine drawing this all in and then siphoning it, siphoning it in into your little bowl of pills. So it's not just the ingredients. You've empowered them with the vital essence of the five elements of your area, right? And that's a crucial element of the practice. So now you've empowered your pills, and then... You engage in a, st a stage regeneration practice. So I, I won't elaborate on that, but some of you will know, but it entails visualization. And, and then, in this meditative stage, you eat 
pill. You eat three pills per day. And it will take you roughly two weeks to make the transition from eating coarse food where you need to defecate. It goes through and then you, you expel the waste products of, of, of excrement. You take about, if, if it goes well and you're well prepared, it takes about two weeks for the whole gastrointestinal tract to shift gears from digesting coarse food where your, your body then needs to separate what it wants to take in and what it wants to eject. It will now take in everything. And so you, so you don't eat any other food. You just take these three pills a day. And they have something in them, but not much. And it's certainly not much quantity, not much matter. But you've empowered it with energy. And after two weeks, if it works well, during those two, two weeks, you lose weight, lose weight, lose weight. And then after two weeks, three weeks, then you stop losing weight. You may, may even gain a little bit weight. And then you can just live on those pills. And you, want it, you can take as much hot water as you like, but that's all you take. Hot water and the pills, nothing else, right? And this really shifts the intestines. The whole, the whole gastrointestinal really makes a major shift here because now, as long as you're living on them, there's no defecation. You'll urinate because you're still taking in liquid, but no defecation, right? You can live on those for months. And because of the subtlety of the nourishment you're taking in, it actually enhances your whole samadhi practice, right? And you're not losing weight, okay? Now, Tibetans have been doing this for centuries, and it's not new age, and it's not speculation, and it's not blind belief. It is, it's absolutely happened, and he achieved it. He achieved it. He said it took him three, three trials. And the first two trials, after a week or two, and he was getting really hungry, then he would scoff down some food and he'd blow it. Right? But the third, the third time, he got through it, and then he, it's called medochulin dupa. Then you accomplish the vital, en- the vital energy substances of flowers, and then you can just live on those. Right? So he did it. He accomplished it. He lived on it for months. Um, and then, while he was up there living on his, metal, on his vital essence pills, March 10th, 1959 took place. The big uprising in Lhasa. And massacre. And then following that, and the monks were just being, they were being hunted down and shot like animals. Uh, you know, to be a monk was to be a criminal. And so then, even though as remote as he was, he thought, we're not safe. I'm not safe. I can't stay here. And then he thought he could just be able to come down and kind of keep low and wait until it blew over. Well, it, did, it hadn't blown over yet. Now it's more than 50 years ago. So as he came down, he saw there was no safe place. So then he knew, I can't stay in my homeland anymore. And there he was, just a solitary yogi, not even living on anybody else's alms, but still, he'd be a criminal, right? From a materialist perspective, he's still worthless. Worse than, worse than worthless from a materialist perspective. He's not doing anything. And so then he had to flee. But seeing, you can imagine how sad he would be that now all that practice he'd built up and developed and was living on these pills now, now he has to just leave for his life. So he came to the Brahma, he told me, I'm, I'm one of his students, and he came to the Brahmaputra River with a bag full of these empowered pills. And he thought, I'm, I'm going to go to a faraway place. There's no way I can continue. And he just, out of despair, sadness, he threw it into the river. And then he made his way down to India. Well, he spent another 30 years in retreat in India. You know, he continued. He was just really an absolute yogi. And of course, he had accomplished this already. He didn't accomplish it again in India. 
He taught it to a number of Tibetans, and none of them succeeded. Not one. Right. So the power of visualization is really crucial for that. So I think, I suspect, that if one is, remains in a tranquil, serene, safe, contemplative environment at high altitude, probably still works as well as ever. But of course, if you're a Westerner, take three months, six months just to detox from your, from your nervous system and everything you're accustomed to because you have to be totally mellow to be able to do that practice and succeed in it. But now the Buddha himself said 2,500 years ago, if you have a mind that's conceptually very agitated, then go for mindfulness of breathing. If it's done correctly, it doesn't tie you up in knots. Dujum Lingba, speaking in exactly that contemplative environment, the high nomadic country of eastern Tibet, he said if you, are, if you have a coarse mind, if you have a coarse mind, and you're a wind element, uh, don't try visualization. He said, you may become catatonic. You, know, you get so locked up, locked in, so tight, so constricted, you just freak out. And he's speaking to nomads 150 years ago in Tibet, right? And he said, don't do that. Go for, go for settling the mind in his natural state. Right? And then we can see for ourselves whether awareness, awareness works. When it's balanced with mindfulness of breathing, a lot of people find it very, very helpful. So that's why I don't teach it. Because I think there are a few people, that is, people who are architects, painters, visual artists, they may be able to do it. Because by their very profession, they're so accustomed to visualizing, and they get good at it, and they can do it without much wear and tear, without much stress and tightness. So those people maybe have a chance, if they can be really mellow and if they really enjoy it. Because it comes right back to Andreas's point, and that is, if you're not enjoying it, not going to work out over the long term. Sooner or later, at least it should be soothing. Even if you're not saying, whoa, this is fun. Well, oh, this is soothing. It's kind of like, this is nice. This is... That's okay. You know? And then it goes from there to a deeper sense of calm, serenity, and a, a, a sublime state, an ambrosial dwelling. Those are the words of the Buddha in mindfulness of breathing. Right? So it needs to have that trajectory of being soothing. And then finally, it's not only soothing, but this is quite calm. And then from that, I like this. And from I like this, some sukha coming in. Then occasionally having some spikes of bliss coming up. That's the pritti, or in Pali, pitti. That coming up. And so when it starts to inspire from within, not because you keep on pumping it up by, by reading about great yogis and reading about the great benefits of it and being inspired by somebody else and what have you. All that is fine. But sooner or later, this has to ignite from inside so that we're not dependent on somebody else. So the people who finished the first retreat in the Shamatha Project four years ago, some of them are still in retreat. A number of them are. And they're all inspired. They're all very happily in practice. And they're contacting me only about once a month. So I know I'm not the reason. If it were a short weekend, maybe, maybe I'm so enthusiastic and inspired, maybe they find me charismatic that they're practicing because they get a buzz off of me. That's possible, I guess. But not when they're living thousands of miles away and it's just an email. There's no way. I'm not. I'm not. It's because the practice is working and they're getting inspiration from inside.
And so I found that's really not at all uncommon for each of these three practices, that these tend to really work. And they all have a great pedigree. They all go back you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. Okay? So that's thank a long you, answer, but it was a big question. No, thank you. That was really very interesting. Oh, yeah. You're welcome. Oh, yeah. Anything else coming up? Maybe it's time to read one, because this is two parts, and we still have a bit more than 10 minutes. Could you please point, could you please point out if and how gross, medium, subtle, agitation and dullness, let's use my terminology, excitation and laxity, differ for the three, for the three shamatha practices. Okay? I really can't do it with words that much. I mean, you have to be in the practice. Um, you have to be in the practice. And from within it, you can see it relative. So I can talk a little bit about it, but there's no way that my words will capture your experience and whoever this person is. I'm, I'm happy for it to be anonymous. In mindfulness of breathing, uh, coarse excitation, I think you all know. It means you've sim simply forgotten about the breath. You're thinking about something else. If it's medium excitation, you're on the breath, but you're kind of more interested in the, in the conversation and the breath is a bit to the side. If it's subtle excitation, then you're really focusing on the breath, but you hear noise on the outside. It pulls you away a little bit, but you're really there. So excitation and dullness. It's not dullness, it's excitation. Dullness is another word. It's laxity. And then I would just say, you know, there's not much difference here in laxity, and that is where the, the clarity is gone, where the clarity is there, but not as much as it could be. And then the subtle laxity is the most subtle of all of the attentional imbalances. And the only way you can recognize it is to be pretty far along the path of shamatha, like stage six. And then you can see, ah, at any, you know, apart from being here, I would think this is really great meditation. But now I've seen what it was like to be free of this. To recognize subtle laxity, you have to know what it's like to be free of subtle laxity and then to step back into it. But you have to see that there's a possibility of even greater vividness. So, and then for settling the mind in its natural state, it's the same thing. It's, get, it's the issue of getting caught up, totally caught up, somewhat caught up, a little bit caught up, and dullness is dullness. And awareness and awareness of awareness, uh, it's the same thing. It's a, it, the excitation is the same as for uh, mindfulness of breathing. And the laxity, coarse, medium, subtle, it's the same. Okay? But most of all, it's going to come out of experience, and that's what our one-on-one -on -one meetings each week are for. Second question is, insofar as overcoming excitation and laxity indicates achieving the various stages. See, I'm using these words very precisely. I'm not just nitpicking, but agitation is another term. The term I'm translating as excitation is gopa. The term that I translated as agitation is toa. Different meaning. And likewise, when I say laxity, it's jingwa. If I say dullness, it's mukpa. So I'm using the words very precisely. So we don't just kind of blend them together, then all the precision is gone. So to overcome excitation and dullness indicates achieving the various stages. Must one do so in all three modes of shamatha practice to truly achieve that stage? For example, yeah, because I'm not getting the question yet. For example, I feel I'm a solid stage three going on stage four. Ah, I think I understand. In mindfulness of breathing, an average of stage two in settling the mind, and about minus 37 in awareness of awareness. Yeah, okay, I think I've understood the question, and that is, <coughs> it's not the case 
that, for example, if you have gotten really a good degree of stability in mindfulness of breathing, and then you go to an entirely different method, settling the mind or awareness of awareness, that you'll bring exactly that same quality right over that does not translate straight across the board. And this becomes really obvious. You can, you can answer this question yourself. If you get into like stage three, stage four in mindfulness of breathing, and then try to do a visualization. Yeah, the Buddha in front or visualizing yourself. No way. No way. It's a different skill set. And so it's not, so it's not irrelevant. It should, that is, if you've achieved stage four in mindfulness of breathing, you should definitely be doing better in the other practices. But it won't be the same. Okay? Because it each has its own, its own skill set, its own, its own context. Uh, and so they'll be relevant for others. And now this has been scientifically demonstrated that people who do develop attentional stability by way of shamatha that that does translate over to other tasks. So the big famous one was in the Shamata project where people looked at a video screen and they saw a, a very brief flickering, I think it was, what was, 100 milliseconds, I think, of a long line or a short line. A number of people hated it. Uh, but for a very short time, a long, a long little rod of light, a short little rod of light, and they would come kind of randomly. They would not come every 10 seconds. They would come after 20 seconds, and then after 10 seconds, then after 15 seconds, after 5 seconds, then after 30 seconds. So you can't just kind of settle in and expect. And so this was, this was measuring attentional stability. Now, number one, if your attention is gone, if you've got caught up in coarse excitation, when that little flicker is really brief, you might not even notice it. Your mind could have been wandering, your eyes were open, but you don't even... You don't even notice it because you're really attending to a thought. And then the scientist did something really... What's the adjective? Nasty. And that is when people got good at it, you know, as their mind is stabilizing, they got good at it. Then they made, the, as I recall, they made the difference in the, between the short and the long less. And I think they might have also made the duration shorter and so just when people are getting their confidence up, they'd shatter their confidence. And they would feel, oh, I still suck. I still suck. One month, two months, and I still suck. I had to feel that was a little bit mean. But they weren't being mean. The motivation was not mean. They just really wanted to understand as much as they could scientifically. And of course, they didn't tell the meditators they'd be doing this, doing this to them. Uh, so again, the, I, I do not say that this was, in fact, mean. There was absolutely, I'm sure, absolutely 100% no malice involved. But it certainly does take the wind out of your sails in terms of confidence. When it's getting harder and harder and you don't know that and you keep on not doing any better at all and you thought you were doing better, but then you're not. And you don't know that it's not your fault. Right? So the point of that was simply to demonstrate stability. But of course, when people, people were practicing shamatha, none of them were focusing on long lines and short lines. They're focusing on one of the three methods. And what they did find is that as people were practicing shamatha, of the, one of the classic methods, it did, in fact, improve the attentional stability. Okay? So it is translated, and there were other studies. I think someone did, uh, Nancy Kanwisher at, at MIT. This was eight years ago. I believe even way back then, they had done some studies uh, showing that if you develop attention skills, they can be, the, tr the term is generalized, or they are, they're, they're transferable, but not 100%. Not 100%. So, if you develop shamatha, here's an example right from our own training here in mindfulness of breathing. 
develop shamatha, starting in mindfulness of breathing, starting with the preliminary sign. So you're focusing on the tactile sensations of the breath. And then, after some time, leave that very vague, the acquired sign arises, a purely mental image. Uh, that's something more subtle. And then you cruise along and you achieve however many stages you haven't yet achieved until you actually achieve shamatha. And then what happens? On the moment when you achieve shamatha, then what happens? I've said it. Anybody remember? It's good to remember, otherwise there's no reason for me to say it. Oh, no, I'm speaking in this context. Yeah, that's right. You have a pressure on the head. But what happens in the context of mindfulness of breathing? There's a preliminary sign. There's a acquired sign. Counterpart sign. What's that like? More subtle. Buddha Gosa says a hundred, nay, a thousand times more subtle. In other words, a lot more subtle. Right? And it's, of course, it's emerging from another whole dimension of reality, from the forum realm. Well, Buddha Gosa comments here, and something important to know about Buddha Gosa, he wasn't just one really brilliant guy. He had a prodigious intellect, fantastic memory, and extraordinary organizational skills. But he's not remembered as a great yogi but as a great systematizer and compiler of centuries of meditative experience in the, in the Theravada tradition. And frankly, during its heyday, its heyday means when it was really golden, when lots of people, lots and lots of people were achieving, becoming arhats, achieving all of the jhanas, the samapatis and so forth, because he's writing in the 5th century and he's drawing on centuries of earlier yogis when Buddhism was really flourishing and there were lots of extremely highly accomplished yogis. So he's drawing on their experience and he's compiling it, systematizing it in his Vasudhimaga, the path of purification. So he comments here that for these generations of yogis, he's like a reporter, he's almost like a journalist, then journalizing on centuries of earlier meditative experience and compiling it into one systematic text. He comments that for yogis who actually achieve access to the first jhana, by way of mindfulness of breathing, and that counterpart sign arises, it is so subtle that they'll, they'll meet it, they'll encounter it, and then almost invariably, right after encountering it, he said, the, the, the awareness just falls back. You just lose it. It's so subtle that you just lose it. And he said, it's like a little toddler, a little t- like a two-year-old, getting up on his chubby little legs, going, ah, poop, and falling back on his bum. Okay? So your mind rises up to meet this extremely subtle, a hundred or a thousand times more subtle than one you've been cruising with for weeks or months, the acquired sign, so much more subtle that you contact it, but then you just lose it so quickly. But if you're content to simply have achieved access to the first jhana, then you can say, okay, don't need it. I've got all of the five jhana factors are in good shape, and all of the five obscurations are dormant, I'm ready for Vipassana. And so that's actually dry Vipassana. Dry Vipassana. It's been misinterpreted all over the place in ways that frankly don't make any sense. But this is a good solid traditional interpretation when when there are references in the Pali literature to dry Vipassana. Dry in what sense? It's not backed up or supported with jhana. But what they mean by jhana is full jhana. Well, if you only achieve access to the first jhana, you've not achieved full jhana, therefore it's dry. And that's the minimal degree of samadhi needed for the vipassana to do its work. And it's called dry vipassana. Now, other people, again, looking for the shortcuts. And I don't know. I just don't know why so much. Well, it's, it's easier. And it doesn't then 
give us the big arduous task of having to achieve shamatha, then this has been interpreted in all other different kinds of ways that it's enough to have momentary samadhi. Just for, for a moment, you're free of the five obscurations, the five jhana factors kind of spike up, and in that moment you practice vipassana. But the Buddha never made any references to momentary samadhi. There's nowhere in any of the Pali canon where the Buddha says momentary samadhi is sufficient. Nowhere. It comes, I asked Bhikkhu Bodhi about this. He's one of the most accomplished scholars of Theravada Buddhism that I know. And I don't remember the exact century, but I think it was maybe the 13th century of the Common Era. So what is that? About 1800 years after the Buddha, some Burmese sub-commentator suggested that maybe this momentary samadhi would be sufficient. But Kamindatera Mindatera, and he was an actually Yugoslavian monk that wrote this outstanding book, which is online, it's free download, writing on shamatha or samatha and vipassana in the Theravada tradition. He shows this is a complete misinterpretation of momentary samadhi to think that's sufficient basis for vipassana to take you all the way along the path. It's completely taken out of context because the term momentary samadhi does come up. It's not, it wasn't just you know, suddenly coming out of the 13th century but it comes up way in the Vipassana section after it's already assumed you've achieved at least one jhana, if not all four. And that's where moment, that's the context of the, all of the discussion of momentary samadhi in the 5th century by Buddhaghosa. 800 years later, somebody ignores context and says, oh, maybe just momentary samadhi is enough. And so I think Kamindatera did, I'm not, I'm not a Pali scholar at all, so I'm not an authority, but I read Kamindatera's account of this and it's solid scholarship and I found it utterly compelling so that was all a tangent from something and the tangent was if you've achieved shamatha on the, by way of the acquired sign that doesn't mean that you'll immediately have shamatha for the counterpart sign it's much more subtle so in a way you have to achieve shamatha all over again with respect to the counterpart sign and that's how you achieve the actual full state of first jhana and then your meditation sessions can blossom from four, four hours to 24 hours on a regular basis of flawless samadhi. Now that's classic authentic teachings. Okay? So you may achieve shamatha by way of a relatively coarse object, but that doesn't mean you've achieved shamatha with respect to a much more subtle object. But if you've achieved it in any one of those ways, then you may re-achieve it with more subtle objects. Right? And, with, you don't, and you're not just going back to, to square one or to beginning. So... Something like that. I don't think there's any shortcut, but there are more and less effective ways to practice shamatha in this modern world. And this becomes a purely empirical question. So I strongly suspect there are still some people, including modern Westerners, who, for whom focusing on a Buddha image would be the best one. They're artists. They find visualization really easy. They love to do it. They have a lot of devotion. So they bring the Buddha to mind and they just love attending to the Buddha. You know, the faith arises. They love doing the practice. I would be very happy to guide them in it, since I have some familiarity with shamatha. It's, not a, it's just a different technique, but the overall practice is the same. So I don't think it's outdated. It's just that a lot of people, it ties them up in knots. That's why. Hola, so have a good dinner. See you tomorrow morning. <laughs>